Good morning from Singapore and welcome to the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore webinar on the impact on Russia-Ukraine conflict on energy transition. I'm Alessandro Arduino and I'm Principal Research Fellow here at MEI. And today I'm very glad to have with us Philip Rose. Mr. Rose has an extensive experience in energy and public-private partnership in Asia. Philip has almost 20 years of knowledge in how to deal with the Middle East, Asia, Africa in conventional oil and gas renewable. His current focus within a large multinational is helping government, industry and society navigate energy transition through integrated urban solution in China and Europe. Early in his career, Mr. Rose spent several years seconded to joint venture in Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And also he had uh, spent some time in Brunei, Nigeria, Netherlands and the United Kingdom working on energy. His area of interest are quite uh, uh, related to the volatile environment where private investors face ambiguity and uh, the need to understand deeply the political, macroeconomic and local dynamic. Today, Mr. Rose is going to speak uh, in private capacity and all his views are on his own. And uh, I strongly invite our audience uh, during his presentation to start sending questions using our Zoom chat box. And I will be very glad to read it to Mr. Rose. But now, without further ado, Philip, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Alessandro. And uh, thanks a lot for um, inviting me um, to the uh, prestigious Middle East Institute uh, to share a few a few thoughts on uh, on what is a incredibly complex, multifaceted uh, topic, with both um, kind of short term dislocations and, and longer term implications, uh, and a lot of challenge to distinguish uh, one from the from the other. I think before diving in. Um, I'd like to add a couple of points about my own background. Um, so as you said, I've, I've been in the private sector uh, for almost uh, for 18 years, uh, with a, a good 10 years of those spent in joint ventures, um, which were really about local commercial partnerships to help um, national governments, in this case, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and others, um, kind of develop their energy resources. Um, and so that has given me a chance to really kind of figure out like what are some of the benefits, but also challenges of the private sector in, in, in helping countries with their, their own development, their own priorities. And one of the most proud moments of my career was, uh, was in Iraq, uh, which was a project about helping the country uh, develop its gas industry um, for power generation and for uh, eventually in the future, creating their own petrochemical industry which is a really, really tough operating environment. And that celebrated a, a milestone yesterday with the, the country's first export of semi-refrigerated LPG, which sounds like a very technical thing, but it, it's more than a decade or more of really a blood, sweat and tears of, of uh, all, all kinds of expertise to actually achieve uh, something like, uh, like that. Um, and I moved into the renewable space in 2018. So the reason I say this is because the perspective um, that uh, I will be sharing is, is one where uh, is, is my own, so it's um, necessarily narrow, but it's one where the private sector uh, features uh, prominently uh, as part of the, uh, of the solution. So 
as I was preparing for uh, for, for for this uh, discussion um, today, uh, I started uh, having a bit of a kind of a epistemological reflection uh, and realized that um, three core beliefs that I had uh, have been really, really challenged. Uh, and so this made me really think deeply about what do I believe in? And when I choose to believe in one thing, what are some of the things that I, I choose not to see or choose to ignore? And for me, the, the three main ones, and I might invite you to think about your own beliefs as well, uh, in the context of this Russia-Ukraine um, crisis. So the first one was a belief uh, that developed around 2018 that oil and gas is a sunset industry. Um, and, and what we're seeing is that whereas it's really hard to figure out whether there's any geopolitical implications of like solar or wind or things like that, there definitely is, and we see that today, the geopolitics um, of the energy transition. And especially when the world focused on um, removing an old energy system before having built a new one, this does uh, causes some uh, major hiccups. The second thing is, I mean, I grew up in the or became an adult in the 1990s and 2000, when really big power politics seemed to be a thing of the past. We were talking about global institutions, rules-based uh, order. But actually what we see is that these things like national security, national priorities, they, they do matter and they can take precedence over a rules-based order. And then the last one, which is a belief that is maybe only 10 years old, um, it's a belief that we're living in an era of, of perpetual cheap money uh, and a lot of debt and that the system cannot take a change to interest rates because it would bankrupt um, large parts of the economy. And I think that belief may, may be challenged today as we are seeing with the reaction of the, head against, the Fed against inflation. Uh, and so I think this is asking fundamental questions about what business models are viable or no longer viable in this context. So more than ever, I ask myself, what do I believe in? And therefore, what am I choosing to, to ignore? So this presentation is, is, is going to be about finding a few, uh, hopefully, uh, useful lenses or frameworks that can um, orient us um, in this uh, flurry of, of, uh, of, of news and, and, uh, and events. So, OK, the, the first one. The first point, I think, is to, to realize that the Russia-Ukraine conflict is a game changer for European uh, energy. Um, and I think it, there are three angles to that. I mean, one is we, we all know that Europe was, was relying on Europe, on Russia, for about 40% of its gas. But that, that um, blurs the real message, which is that some parts of Europe, especially in the, um, in the south and in the east of Europe, uh, relied 100% on, on, on Russian gas. And so what we're seeing is in the short term is um, like, let, let's call it a, a one or two year uh, big scramble um, where Europe is, is, um, is, is trying to um, uh, improve its um, energy security and its energy independence, uh, looking at uh, crude oil, um, probably the easiest, uh, oil products um, like diesel and refined products, a lot less easy, 
uh, and then gas, uh, which is almost impossible. Um, and there, really, all options are on the table. Um, so we are seeing a scramble throughout the, the whole size of the solution space, um, meaning um, uh, new focus on coal, uh, LNG imports uh, from the Middle East and from the US, um, but that the ability to do so, to do so is, heavily, uh, is heavily constrained, and we'll, we'll dive into that a bit more. Longer term, we, we will have, and I'm talking about five-year time horizon, um, the decoupling of, of the European energy system from, from Russia will largely be achieved uh, through, through both sides of the energy equation, so the supply side and the demand side, uh, and it's important to keep both in mind uh, because both have huge implications. So on the supply side, it means an energy system that is um, uh, reliant on, on LNG, uh, renewable generation, uh, much more uh, storage, both gas storage and uh, hopefully battery storage as well. Um, but also on the demand side, so it, it'll be a much more dynamic and, and modern uh, energy and electricity system. It's important to make the distinction um, where uh, efficiency will be the rule of the game, uh, a lot better regulation, uh, much more dynamic, um, and a focus on um, uh, moving away uh, from, from hydrocarbon uh, for, for sectors that are, have been uh, traditionally hard to, 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 uh, to um, transition, especially like the building stock and heating. Um, and then the last theme here is to realize that what we're talking about is an extraordinarily painful transition because um, this context of energy uh, challenge is coming on top of an already problematic inflation picture, which means that large parts of uh, core European industry uh, are no longer competitive because their costs have gone up. And those industries go away and never come back. Um, so this also means that the Eurozone as a block, so the Euro as a currency, as it is designed today, um, is, is at risk. Why? is because um, the, the inflation moves at different speeds in different parts of the, of the Eurozone. And because the Euro is shared everywhere, countries don't have national level discretion to make any uh, monetary policy adjustments. So this is causing um, strains in the system, which require reallocation, uh, and especially remedies uh, to address the unequal distribution of pain. Uh, in practice, it means um, middle class, low middle class um, bear the brunt um, of inflation and of higher energy prices uh, and have no uh, way out. And, and I think we can safely say that the French election results of yesterday are a clear uh, indication that economy is now top of mind and the current, um, the current uh, government doesn't have uh, compelling uh, answers. Um, so the second lens, if you like, that uh, is, is useful to, to, uh, to keep in mind is that Russia is not going anywhere. Um, it, it is and will remain a, a significant uh, energy player. And, and, and um, some of the numbers are worth keeping in mind. I mean, we're, we're talking about 
14% of world uh, crude oil um, production and a staggering amount of that um, exported to uh, Europe. Um, and then of course, um, uh, Russia being one of the world's largest natural gas uh, production, which is a crucial source of energy, especially to help manage the energy transition. A lot of that exported by, by pipeline and a share by, by LNG. Um, so for Russia, um, it's, a, it's, it's really a space, a space to watch. But as of kind of today, um, what we're seeing are primarily uh, uh, short-term logistical challenges of, of physical nature, physical constraints. So how to reroute oil and gas uh, in the absence of uh, uh, enough pipelines and enough LNG capacity uh, to find new markets. I think the biggest one to keep in mind is, is what's going to happen uh, with the EU, EU latest sanction package to do with sanctions on uh, insurance, trade finance, uh, and shipping, uh, which, if implemented, um, could, could actually wipe out quite a large chunk of uh, Russian oil production in terms of its ability to, to, to find a, a, a buyer. Uh, that sanctions package is being revisited and may uh, changed to be changed to a, a kind of a, a tariff discount equivalent to what uh, China and India are currently paying, uh, which would have the same effect of hurting Russia, but guarantee uh, enough uh, oil in the system to uh, avoid basically a global crisis of oil, uh, which uh, if you ask me what would be the top geopolitical risk today, I, I would name that one as number one. Um, and then lastly, uh, in terms of short-term logistical challenges, it's interesting to see that um, current buyers of Russian crude still consider Russian energy as incremental uh, barrels, as in like um, core sources of energy from, from other countries, which are seen as more stable, and, and uh, Russian imports as being uh, uh, kind of ad hoc due to the uncertainty, not only about logistics, but about Russia's ability to continue uh, production at current levels uh, in the face of all the sanctions that affect technology, spare parts, and, and manpower. And Russia's uh, um, kind of position has been to find, uh, to rely on, on its primarily East, uh, Asian uh, trade relationships. So a lot of the spare energy is being purchased by, by China, by Europe, and by wider Asia. And interestingly, there's some reports that say that India is actually re-exporting some of that energy back to Europe, um, which is an interesting one to, to watch whether that will be tacitly agreed to or, or not. Um, so primarily, we've seen a, a dislocation of flow, but not a dislocation of, of, uh, of supply uh, for now. And another lens that is worth keeping in mind is that um, we were already talking about inflation uh, before uh, the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, crisis uh, due to the um, erosion of supply chains uh, in, the, in the COVID period, pickup of economy, um, and, and, uh, and, and other factors which are a bit beyond this presentation. But now um, the Russia-Ukraine crisis 
is 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 not just impacting uh, energy, but but Russia and the Ukraine are, are are large exporters of a lot of other things. Um, so, for example, coal is one, but also metals and and minerals. Uh, so, iron, uh, palladium, um, fertilizers has been a lot in the in the news. Uh, platinum and aluminium and other uh, food products like like especially wheat, barley, and 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 others. So what this is doing is it's exacerbating uh, food price increases and it's making the, the, the input of um, um, regional industries that depend on it uh, more costly. So it's killing um, industry competitiveness in, in entire parts of, um, of, of countries. Uh, like for example, Alessandro, close to you, uh, the, 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 the pasta uh, business in Italy is, is, uh, is, uh, is, 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 is punished by, by, by the situation um, and, and very difficult to see how and when they'll be uh, able to recover. Uh, and of course, this is having a compound effect on, on, uh, on demand. Um, so now I'd like to... to, to uh, um, this one is a little technical, but I think it's, it's, it's worth talking about. So it's like when we talk about Europe wanting to uh, pull the plug on Russia, uh, especially on, on, uh, on gas, uh, basically uh, it's not possible. Um, it, it's extraordinarily complex to do that. Uh, and, and it requires um, literally all of the above type of answer. Um, and so what I'm putting up on screen here is um, the International Energy Agency's 10-point um, blueprint, if you like, for Europe um, to uh, reduce or eliminate its reliance on, on, uh, on Russian energy. Um, and and I'll, I'll pick out a few uh, highlights there. And on the left is um, the corresponding uh, one-year uh, chart about uh, what, how much uh, EU gas imports can be reduced uh, by implementing some of these uh, measures uh, within a year. And um, I think the key messages here is one is ga gas is extraordinarily complex to replace. Um, so even if we look at uh, alternative sources of, uh, of supply, so basically buying LNG or buying more piped gas from other countries, uh, we, we only talk about like 10, 20% of, of overall supply that can be swapped in that way. But then another realization is Europe needs to increase the amount of gas that it stores seasonally to deal with winters when demand is much higher. So a lot of that alternative supply is actually being used to fill up um, huge gas storage facilities, uh, which are basically empty reservoirs um, that are being used to offset the huge swing in, in, uh, in, uh, in demand uh, when, we, when we go into the winter period. Uh, that, that one is, the seasonality is important, keep in mind. And then there's a lot of things that can be done to mitigate uh, gas uh, needs, which are actually not on the supply side, but, but on the demand side. So basically we're telling people to use less energy as a solution. <laughs> so uh, kind of back, back, to, uh, back, back to the um, prehistoric times in, in, in a summary. But, but what it means is things like that are really expensive and hard to do, like installing heat pumps 
uh, in buildings and in cities to replace the need for, for gas-fired heating, looking at all kinds of upgrades to improve energy efficiency, uh, and even th doing things like uh, uh, policy-based stuff where you, you essentially you, you, you compel or you nudge people to use less um, heating in Europe or cooling elsewhere. Um, and then that only takes you down to about a third of, of, your, uh, of your gas needs. So you have still a long way to go. Um, so some of the other points in the IEA uh, plan are like, of course, new uh, wind and solar capacity, coal and nuclear are, are massively back on the agenda, taxation uh, for windfalls for companies that are making more money in this period, um, things like thermostat reduction, um, and then finding ways of replacing, uh, at the moment, gas in Europe is used heavily as a, as a flexible supply. So when you have not enough solar or wind, you kick off, uh, uh, you, you switch on gas plants for this flexibility. So finding other solutions for that uh, and investing in those, uh, for, for example, hydro can be used as a, as a storage mechanism gas storage, uh, battery storage, all, all of that is, uh, is on the cards. Um, and then besides that, you have political solutions, um, which are uh, really challenging to do. Like, for example, partnering with, with Turkey, uh, with countries in the Caspian Sea, uh, even with Libya, um, all of which uh, can provide alternatives to, to, uh, to Russian energy, but require navigating very, very complex uh, regional and, and security issues. So what, what does it mean for the energy uh, transition? Um, so I think that the first thing it means is that um, we're, we're not hearing as much, I, I don't want to make a bad joke, but we're not hearing as much um, um, from, from Greta Thunberg today as we used to. But what I mean by that is top of agenda, both in, um, in uh, governments, but also in, in, the, in the street with the public is really about energy security and, and energy affordability, actually over climate concerns. So this is leading, for example, Germany to look at reinvesting in coal, uh, which, which is just, if you told me that a year ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, th there is, of course, now a much more concerted policymaking uh, effort across the board to sustain focus on, on, uh, on investment, uh, not just for climate now, but for energy independence as well. However, a lot of that focus is very uh, national, national or nationalistic even, or following an industrial policy approach. Um, even in things like uh, subsidies for hydrogen um, are very much defined to, to uh, target local or European or regional companies uh, and, and research centers and, and basically against China. Let's be, let's be transparent. There's a desire by uh, uh, governments to uh, promote their local industries to make a transition, not just in the energy space, but in the industrial space um, uh, to avoid what's happened in wind and solar, which has been dominated by, by Asian players or Chinese players. Um, now, having said that, uh, 
the the high energy commodity supply chain issues all of that is of course also impacting low carbon alternatives um, so the chart i have on the left is green line so over the last what is it like 10 15 years the levelized um, cost of, of energy for solar has been constantly dropping um, uh, to a point where new solar systems uh, were, were cheaper than running existing conventional energy systems uh, like gas or coal in almost all countries. Uh, but now the last year or so, what we're seeing is, so this is a chart about uh, polysilicon prices, boom, are going through the roof back to levels uh, of, of a decade ago. So that is, of course, hampering further development uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the renewable space. It's still more competitive than conventional, um, but it, it means that funding and, and also the low returns of the, uh, of the uh, renewable space are, 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 are having a, it's basically deferring uh, uh, adoption of, of uh, an investment in, in, uh, in projects. Um, another massive challenge for the energy transition is, is the regulatory challenge, which is how to protect uh, consumers due to the uh, fact that market um, deregulation, which is necessary to move into energy transition, is, is hurting uh, the, the, the pocket of, 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 of families and everyone. Um, and, and what we're seeing, though, is, is maybe, a, a, unlike earlier, a, a much more uh, holistic uh, approach to policy making, uh, focusing on, on energy efficiency as well. Um, so retrofitting, heating, and, and thinking, uh, thinking about the whole energy system as opposed to just the gener generation part. And even a rethinking about what does industry actually mean? How do you do low carbon or zero carbon sustainable uh, uh, industrial hubs in your country? So how do you co-locate uh, energy generation, uh, maybe hydrogen, uh, carbon storage, uh, together with various sectors of the industry to create an integrated hub. Um, so, and we're seeing much more uh, creativity now um, to include uh, aspects around in inequality, cost of living, even health and transport to design uh, new policy frameworks for, uh, for this new, new world. Um, but coal is having a new lease of life and uh, even coal prices are, are, are going, uh, going back up. So um, now if we try to translate all this stuff into what does it mean um, for, uh, for, for Asia, um, I think one, one important perspective here is, is really to, to, to stop and, and think about uh, China. Um, the, the, uh, I think it's fair to say that the magnitude of the uh, US-led and Europe-led sanctions against Russia are a, um, I would say, a, a, a uh, historical first. It's the first time that, or in recent memory or recent history, that foreign reserves of a country held in abroad, basically, were, were, were frozen out. And so, of course, China is thinking, given 
its massive foreign reserves abroad, how to reduce their exposure in the scenario where someone were to do the same to them. And that, that has really wide ranging implications on the structure of the Chinese economy and its exposure to foreign markets. And that, that is causing a lot of um, uh, deep reflection uh, uh, there. Um, another effect, of course, is that Europe was expecting um, more alignment from China about um, a, an aligned front regarding uh, Russia's actions in the Ukraine uh, and the, the, the importance of, of this idea of, of sovereignty. And so there is some backlash among European uh, government leaders um, encouraging industry to reconsider their exposure to China overall. But how long-term that is, whether it's transitory remains to be seen um, given continued importance of the Chinese market um, for, for the economy. The, the third point is that the ongoing China dynamic zero COVID policy that is surprising foreign investors and MNCs, uh, given its impact on the ability to continue um, cross-fertilization uh, exchanges of, of uh, knowledge and just the fluidity that is required for, for continuing normal business operations. Um, and then there's a question mark on the impact of all that on uh, Chinese domestic growth uh, and on to what level we will see a, a localization of supply chains, uh, basically reviewing the global manufacturing model that China has enjoyed for, for the last 10, 20 years. The second point I'd say here is th this new topic of stagflation, um, which as, as I said when I started this uh, presentation, is the, 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 there's never been as much debt in the global system ever in history. And a lot of that debt was fueled by very low, close to zero interest rates. And so now you have large parts of the economy that are so leveraged, I'm talking private companies, that you can call them zombified, which means that they're their cash flow is barely able to fund the cost of debt at low interest rate levels. And so that gives very little room for any change in, in monetary policy because it, it would just wipe out so much of the economy. And so we're in a situation now where we have likely negative US GDP, very little space for monetary policy to tame inflation without causing damage. Um, and as a consequence, a lot of questions mark, question marks about what, are, what is the macro environment uh, going forward, which, which we haven't had for a, a good decade. And so all of this, I think I was trying to figure out what, what does it mean or what are some relevant themes for, for Singapore? Um, so I think one of which is, is we're seeing that already is the, these high energy prices are, um, having an impact on manufacturing competitiveness, uh, the export market, even the labor market. But, and maybe we could say that the, the increase in geopolitical risk usually historically comes with a reduction in global trade. So there's this inverse relation, uh, but th there are silver linings or there are uh, areas of growth. I mean, one of the few 
sectors that is that is um, less or not hurt in the latest downturn or, or has has even uh, gained is is uh, commodities so metals mining and all of that um, so we, we can talk about where well, we talked about a tech decades the previous decade we're probably talking about a commodities decade now and singapore is is a is a very important hub in, in asia for that or globally for that um, and of course, there's a huge effort to reconfigure supply chains regionally to account uh, for the current shortfalls and the current geopolitical reality. So there's a question mark as well, in, uh, which is on the back of um, the, the, the crypto crisis that we've had over the last uh, week or so, is, is this shakeup opening up uh, opportunities for Singapore uh, to continue its, its um, kind of... Uh, uh, hub, uh, the, the growth of the hub of excellence in all things uh, blockchain, uh, especially I'm thinking applications for carbon markets and, and, and decentralized autonomous organizations, etc. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll wrap up with a quick uh, uh, summary of, of my views on, on, uh, on Saudi Arabia, uh, because of the MEI's focus on, uh, on the Middle East. Um, so, to me, the 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 core uh, the core interests uh, of the kingdom are around maintaining its role in OPEC plus and its agreement with with Russia. And so, Russia, there's been no push or or, or discussion about um, excluding Russia from OPEC plus, which is important to note. Um, and to balance that with U.S. Uh, requests uh, to increase oil production. And the reason the U.S. is doing that is because um, the, of the upcoming uh, elections in the U.S. and uh, the fact that inflation and the, the, the pump price is such an emotional thing uh, over there. Um, and so, and Saudi um, has views of the market which are quite different to uh, to US, the US administration. So the, the, the kingdom's view is that actually the, the, the fundamentals of supply demand um, is not responsible for the, the huge prices that we're seeing now, and that the prices are affected by other things like um, geopolitical risk or the risk of other sanctions disrupting the market. And so they don't believe that um, increasing um, oil production would actually help uh, the U.S. Or, or, or that it would require a, 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 such an, a level of, in, of, of oil production increase as to uh, warrant a huge uh, U.S. concession uh, to do with Iran, for example, that, that the U.S. would never, never give. We're still likely to see some form of announcement uh, during or following um, the Biden's visit um, to the kingdom. Uh, but whether it'll actually materialize or be substantial remains to be seen. On the political side, I think the consensus among analysts, and this is a bit outside my expertise area, is, is that um, the, the Crown Prince has, has really consolidated his, his authority so we're, and, and also has strong support from the young population, which is, uh, which is um, uh, a large part of the overall population in the kingdom. Um, and so we, we're probably seeing a period of relative stability in the in the in the next five years. Um, although worth noting a couple of uh, kind of headwinds, 
one on the, the pace of reform implementation, so Saudi 2030, is challenging because of the, the paucity of human capital, uh, the small size of the, the private sector, and the overall administration and the, the Saudi system, it, is, it has a lot of inertia behind that. And there's a lot of costs uh, associated uh, with continued support to core allies like Jordan and Egypt, uh, which are uh, struggling due to food insecurity. And so the Saudis are, are helping them. Um, and we've also seen a, a refocus in Saudi towards, let's call it domestic nationalism. Uh, so leaving away uh, the, uh, the pan-Arabism and the pan-Islamism that was driving a assertive foreign policy uh, recently. So as an outlook, I think for Saudi, clearly what we're seeing is uh, a much stronger orientation towards Asia for longer term uh, energy markets and bold investments in the downstream hydrocarbon sector, including in China and India, actually, um, because Saudis uh, and the kingdom they, they realize that uh, Saudi uh, crude, especially, will remain in the system forever because of its low cost of uh, cost of production, uh, the, the, the stability of its production, and the fact that the, the grade of crude is also one that is that is uh, that is clean and therefore attractive uh, globally. So that gives them quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of leverage. Um, maybe a last remark before pausing there would say like, there's actually not that much uh, kind of buffer that um, OPEC plus has to, to increase uh, production, even if the US wanted to, because they, they're already about two and a half million barrels per day behind their cumulative uh, group target. And only uh, the kingdom and the UAE have uh, spare capacity to, to do much about that. Um, um, so, and other producers outside OPEC, like Libya, are, are really struggling to move beyond. They're producing about 10% of their capacity. Uh, so this is 1 million barrels that are out of the system. And there's still looming uncertainty, uh, especially about this EU sanctions ban that could really crunch the, the market. So let me pause there. Thank you very much, uh, Philippe. Uh, it's been a very uh, interesting uh, and very deep research presentation. And you touched a lot of topics that stem out from this uh, ongoing crisis from Ukraine, not only related to energy. Uh, I mean, you mentioned painful transition, zombified company, inflation. And I'm quite worried if I'm asking the question about stagflation, what their answer will be. But having said that, I find very interesting when you started your presentation, you mentioned a belief. And now closing the presentation, you were talking about emotion in Saudi mm. Arabia. Yeah. So uh, as you give a very scientific and data-driven presentation, I'm sure uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine created and is creating uh, a very deep emotional involvement. So how you remain critical when uh, there is so much emotional involvement attached to a topic. Yeah, and I think you, you're asking a, a, a almost a philosophical question, I think, here, and, and not just related to to, uh, to 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 this particular topic, but in 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 general, um, and and I think. <laughs> 
because I've been thinking about the the meaning of this this crisis as well for 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 Singapore, and and um, I was actually traveling in Europe when there was this news headline from Singapore that reached me, which was about chicken. Um, how how what one person um, found um, a chicken in a in a bag in a fair price for seventy two, I think it was seventy two Sing dollars, and that made pretty much everyone knows about that chicken. It happened to be two chickens, and it happened to be uh, I think a, a premium chicken, if I believe. But what I mean is that that's emotion, like when when a, a hawker food vendor cannot buy chicken and therefore um, has a livelihood that is, that is at risk, I mean, that becomes kind of the most important issue for that person and definitely the, the issue that this person will talk about to their member of parliament and, and puts away a, a lot of the debate about um, climate change and, 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 and moral principles around how to deal with uh, Russia, for example. And it's important to know that the kind of negative feelings towards Russian actions are not shared everywhere. Even in Europe, there are parts of Europe that believe that the US was behind this. And I don't want to talk about why is that and the role of propaganda, uh, but even in, in, in Asia, the, the emotional view about Russian actions are, are quite, quite different, I would say, than, than what you would find in, in the street in, in, in Western Europe. Um, and so for, for me, um, what, what, what has helped me is, is to... to, um, to pause and take time to give space to what are my beliefs? What, what is it that I'm accepting without the need for evidence? Because the moment I do that, this opens uh, my mind to other opinions and other opinions usually mean other realities, like the reality of the um, hawker food vendor who can't buy chicken. So I guess that's kind of my compass in, in a world where even with 18 years of experience in the energy sector, I, I feel it's still a struggle to find the right frameworks to guide uh, my actions, my views, and, 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 and some of my, my professional choices. Does that help? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and we start to receive a lot of questions from uh, from audience already. Uh, and one, of course, uh, as we are based here in Singapore, uh, is directly related to something that you already touched base in your presentation. And this uh, counting on your 20 years of experience, what this spike on energy price will mean for Singapore. Yeah. And you talked about uh, the geopolitical risk, but increase of trade. And I think it will be very interesting to deal more into that. The floor is here. Yeah, so I think it's it's maybe worth recognizing that what we're talking about today is is um i don't think we're overstating things if we say we're talking about a generational crisis or a set of crises one to do with energy 
um, uh, with Russian energy being just a part of it, um, the other part being having dismantled our conventional energy system without having a new one in place, uh, and, and also not, not having had a, a good discussion about how, how we're going to continue um, hydrocarbon investment while we transition. Like if we are pushing multinationals and, and large oil and gas players to divest, who's going to do, the, who's going to do that in the transition period? Um, so energy is one. The second is this macroeconomic uh, issue of inflation with a ton of debt. The third one is the geopolitical challenge uh, to, to do with the um, US, China, and all of that. And then the last one, which we were kind of forgetting, is, is the climate crisis, for God's sake, as well. Um, so, so four generational crises, which are uniquely complex because they have a, a real deep domestic impact with the, the pain felt uh, locally very profoundly. And so the challenge, I think, for Singapore is how to balance inclusive policies while maintaining regional competitiveness, because Singapore's model draws its prosperity from its openness. Um, so to me, Singapore has long been an incubator for uh, innovation. Um, and, and there's a lot of areas there um, that, that, that uh, Singapore is, is very advanced in, in terms of low, low carbon energy products, clean tech in general, um, a lot even at the R&D stage. Even the, the crypto and the, the DAO and the blockchain space, and of course, the role of Singapore as a regional hub, especially given the neighborhood, uh, re remains attractive. But I think the challenge is about how to innovate, not just in, in commercial models and, and technology, but really on the policy side, on the demand side, on energy efficiency, uh, and doing so with... Um, social policies that favor uh, equality, um, which is, is a really hard, nut to, really hard nut to crack. But I think in the highly talented uh, Singaporean work workforce and the, the configuration of Singapore primarily as a city uh, gives a certain number of adv advantages uh, there as well. And uh, I have another question from uh, our audience and is related uh, uh, to Russia and China relationship. It was very clear at the end uh, of the Winter Olympic where China was standing and has been reiterated uh, during these days. But uh, from the energy point of view, the question is, uh, is Russia going to increase uh, its supply of uh, oil and gas to China and how? So R Russia is trying to find uh, new, it, the, the, I think there's a short term and a longer term thing here. The, the, in the short term, it's a scramble. So it's Russia is trying to find alternative buyers for its uh, for its energy, um, and and um, th there is an element of um, uh, opportunities opportunism opportunism um, from the part of uh, India and China because th there's suddenly a shortfall uh, for for Russia in terms of its uh, buyers on the Western side of the, of the country. So this is an opportunity for countries uh, like China and, and, uh, and India um, to 
uh, basically pr procure uh, hydrocarbons and command uh, steep discounts. Uh, and for now, um, the, the, there's not been major backlash from, from sanctions makers, US and, and Europe, to, to, to kind of interfere uh, with that. So longer term, we may see a reconfiguration uh, of uh, trade routes really towards uh, China and India. Um, and uh, the, the, the big question mark, I'd say, is twofold. I would say what one is how sustainable is Russian oil and gas production in the face of ongoing sanctions, as in lack of spare parts. Um, like, like there's a story recently of, um, uh, I believe it was Gazprom that um, required specialist maintenance for its gas turbines, which could only be done in Canada, and Canada froze the uh, the turbines and and uh, refused to return them. And, and Gazprom used that argument to, to shut a gas pipelines to Europe. But it's an anecdote, but it, it, the, the real point is that um, Russia has not functioned autonomously from an oil and gas perspective uh, over the last 20 years or so. Um, and so there may be quite a significant impact on its ability to, to, uh, to maintain production levels. Um, and that could have quite a significant impact if that shortfall in production is not met by additional investments uh, elsewhere. Now, what is the impact of that on the Russian Federation and its budget, which I think is, is a core question? Um, well, at the moment, I mean, with oil prices of $120 and above, even if you sell uh, half what you used to be selling before, it's still hundreds of billions of dollars a year that are funding the Russian Federation, which um, at least from a um, kind of state budget perspective is more than enough. Um, the, the, the real question is what's gonna to happen to the rest of the economy, given it is cut off as well from the rest of uh, the world. And what, co what added costs that will bring to the Russian Federation to basically prop up a non-hydrocarbon sector that is gonna be down on, its, uh, down on its knees. So ho hope that answers the question. Absolutely. And um, I have a very long question now uh, uh, from a colleague of mine, Asif Suja, and he's asking, Persian Gulf countries have been striving to move away from their dependence on oil to diversify their economy. Russia and Ukraine war has compelled Europe to move away from their dependence on hydrocarbon to punish Russia. Does this commonality provide an avenue of cooperation between the Gulf and European countries? Yeah, so there, there definitely are a lot of exchanges uh, between European and, and Gulf countries on, uh, I would say, the alternative or non-oil non and gas uh, space. So a lot of investments in the, in the renewable space in the, in the Gulf, and also uh, really interesting advanced discussions uh, about uh, looking at ammonia and, and hydrogen exports uh, produced uh, green, so, so using renewable energy, and then shipped into, into Europe. How, how competitive uh, that will be remains to be seen, but that, that is showing an extent of cooperation uh, that goes way beyond the traditional uh, hydrocarbon uh, space there. Um, th there is, I, I would say there's a major advantage in the Gulf to move into renewables 
for itself, actually, because let, let's not forget that most of the energy system in the Gulf is based on oil and gas for power generation. And so um, there's an demographic and an, in, and an economic growth rate, which is pretty significant, which is uh, eating into the amount of hydrocarbon that is available for export uh, and at, a, at a staggering opportunity cost. And so the, the main beneficiaries of the energy transition in the Gulf is the Gulf itself to uh, continue its, its, um, its role as, as kind of the, the last bastion or the last uh, kind of producer of the, 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 the producer of the, world, the, the last barrels that the world will, 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 will need in 2050 or so. Oh, and you mentioned the renewable, but also I think it was just a, a news uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago when uh, looking at Italy, for example, ENI uh, just last month doubled its import of gas from Algeria, but just yesterday uh, confirmed a, 25, a 27 years agreement with Qatar for the development uh, of the northeastern field. At the same time, Gazprom cut more than 50% his output to Italy. Yeah. Uh, look good, uh, as you mentioned, if we have to divide in short term and long term uh, for the long term part. Uh, but I'm sure, as in everything, and especially in energy, time is the essence. Europe is uh, getting ready to transition out of dependence from Russia, but this is going uh, to, to take uh, an important uh, uh, time. So in, uh, in your opinion, um, this uh, how is going to play in the acceleration of course of this project and at the end as you made the joke before on that but i think it's it's very compelling how now avoiding this global energy crisis uh, is making let's say less as less passionate about climate change yeah so to me what i what i think this is I mean, okay, this is, again, it's multifaceted um, points here. I think the, the private sector has really bought into the, 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 the Paris commitments and commitments to decarbonize. So there's a huge enthusiasm among private sector players to, to move into sustainability and find all, all options possible uh, to do that. Which I think is 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 uh, is new and it is 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 encouraging, although uh, uh, in markets that are not fully uh, deregulated and in, in many cases in Asia actually, the 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 cost for for executing some of these plans is 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 uh, is prohibitive, especially in a, in a period of uh, economic uh, stagnation or low low growth uh, or, or high interest rates as well. Um, now, for Europe, I think, I, I really, really hope I'm wrong, but there's massive pressures on the cohesion of Europe in its approach towards Russia because of the fact that the, both the, the, the kind of the, the economic prosperity East and West in Europe is so uh, different, uh, and also the exposure to Russia is also very, very different. So unless Europe is, is able to quickly agree ways of supporting the countries with the most pain, I think we will see more and more emphasis on um, 
inequality and uh, and, and I would say populist type uh, pop, uh, kind of priorities uh, over uh, the immediacy of of, uh, of the of the climate emergency that we've had in the headlines. Uh, so so in practice, it it means the energy transition is going ahead, but probably uh, on an even uh, slower uh, timeline. Uh, I, I would say. Oh, thank you. Unfortunately, I think we are running out of time, so we have time for one more question from the audience. And uh, I, I want just to ask you, if you have the chance to talk with President Biden right now, and you have the possibility to give him one suggestion ahead of his meeting with Mohammed bin Salman in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and especially in terms of expectation, what do you expect in terms of OPEC plus increase of production and efficiency for that? What will be your suggestion? Yeah. To me, um, the, the the challenge is I find I think that the 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 room to maneuver of of U.S. President Biden is, is going to be very limited, and I, I I think part of the the, the goal of the of the uh, of the meeting is is going to be really about uh, testing what, what kind of a potential partner Mohammed bin Salman can be, not just in the context of energy, but in the context of uh, regional plans, especially the, 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 the perspective of normalizing ties with, 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 uh, with Israel. So I think the, the message I would have is um, to, to balance um, pragmatism with principle as well. Um, especially given his campaign promises uh, relating to the uh, assassination of, of uh, Khashoggi. Uh, so that, that would be my, uh, my, my, uh, my message to him. But I think, to me, the, the broader kind of thing on my mind uh, that I wanted to, to share is, is, um, is, is more of a kind of a, a broad uh, rule for life uh, that, that I think is relevant to all of us, which is, the first one is really to encourage all of us to always keep learning uh, and especially to really understand the energy system um, because that navigating the energy system it is going to be our, our daily reality uh, in the next five to ten years. Um, concepts like final energy use, the difference between energy and electricity, and familiarize ourselves with the, the messy bits like like what does demand side policy uh, and, and its challenges, what, what, what are they? So this is the first one, keep learning. And then the second one is, is about Singapore, actually, um, which I, I really think that there's a massive scope for the country to continue uh, with innovation. But I think it, it, it means that everyone needs to be more and more comfortable with uncertainty as a norm um, and, to, and therefore to find um, an inclusive approach that doesn't leave anyone behind while staying open to the world, I would say. And with that, uh, Philip, I would like to sincerely thank you for uh, your time with us today in our webinar. It's been extremely interesting uh, and you have been as a really broader view on the impact uh, of the conflict, not only on the energy system, but in all other areas. Please also allow me to thank to all our audience for being with us from the beginning to the end and uh, to Sharon and Jamalia for having supported uh, in the background uh, today's event. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you.
Thank you, Alessandro. Thank you, everyone.